Now, we have another guest in studio who is also called Paul, so take it away. Yeah, um, we're delighted um, to have Paul Brennan, well known to people in East Clare and well known to listeners of Scarif Bay Community Radio. Um, has a connection, of course, last year, um, came to the helm and um, was part of a very innovative project um, produced here out of Scarif Bay Community Radio in the context of the world it is that we were living in at the time. Paul, you're very welcome this Thank morning you. to talk about your broad career, maybe not just your Scarif Bay Community Radio career, sure. but maybe we'll start out, bring you back to that. How did you find that whole project last year, radio drama? Yeah, it was quite a, um, an unusual experience, you know, taking adjudication, which I normally do on stage, and bringing it to radio. And um, we worked very simply just with, with um, the old mobile phone, you know, it was my microphone. So um, I'd, I'd uh, listen to the, the plays in advance. The glory of that being that I could stop and say, play that, give me that again, you know, we're, we're replaying a bit. You can't and, do that in Dunbeg yeah, in a March evening, no. Absolutely, and uh, the fact that I could stop and re-listen to something and go back and make my mind up about it slowly instead of having to quickly decide on the spur of the moment. Because you're going up on stage to talk to a, an audience having just absorbed the thing, you know, I mean, all right, you've read the play in advance in, in live theatre, but in radio, you can just stop and go back over it and really, really be ready. And yet, despite being really, really ready, doing the adjudication live into my mobile phone just felt so weird. And it was just, that made it difficult again. Um, and I, it's, it's like talking into this mic is easier than talking into my phone somehow, you know. I don't know why that is. But at all events, I eventually found that I virtually had to write out the adjudication in order to really not be stumbling and stuttering over it, you know. I mean, I'd be there criticising the actors on the radio productions for stumbling and stuttering and then start doing it myself in the adjudication. So, yeah. I, 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 a learning process even I for you I found it was a learning process, yeah. And I mean, you know, there was a certain emphasis laid in the course of the thing on the fact that I had a radio career as a very young person. A career that started at the age of six. Right. Um, at the age of six, I was brought into by my mother, who's a radio actress. Yeah, brought into uh, Radio Erin, which was in Henry Street at the time. It was R E, not yet R T E, and uh, there was no television yet. Nineteen fifty nine put up on the back of a sofa so that my voice would reach the microphone and said my two lines in this particular little half-hour drama which they were recording. And um, that was the start of my radio career and that ran right through to the age of 13 or 14 when my voice broke, which of course meant that that was the end of that. And, um, and yet none of that seems terribly relevant in terms of experience and how to play to the mic or whatever it is you need for radio. You know, it's like all that experience had vanished long ago. It's a totally so, different discipline. Yeah, and I hadn't done much radio since. I did one stint on Harbour Hotel when I was sometime in my late 20s, I think. Harbour Hotel being a radio oh, soap. We're, we're all of a certain age that we can remember <laughs> Harbour Hotel after. Was it after news or before the news? Um, I think one o'clock in the day anyway. Yeah, there. Sometime yeah, along yeah, one o'clock. Yeah, I think yeah. it was before. It was just before yeah. the new. I yeah, do. Well, yeah, yeah, I can't yeah, recall yeah, it yeah. as well. So I, pl- I played a, a journalist, and um, I was remember one of the radio actors, uh, Benny Caldwell, Brendan Caldwell. Brendan Caldwell. Yeah, do, if you remember, I do Brendan, remember Brendan yeah. Caldwell. Yeah, he uh, fine actor, but he he, um, he said to me, "That's a great character, that journalist." Here. He last. It lasted eight weeks. So. <laughs> 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 that was the end. They decided to dump it. So I had only that brief radio experience, and uh, and coming to the um, the adjudication was. On radio, it was, um, yeah, it was like I was a, a newbie, you know, it was like a beginner all over again. And as you said, in your own house, in your own kitchen, having yeah. to do, which is probably very discommoding, trying to do a professional job. We all had this work from home ethos last year. A lot of people had it. Sure. But trying to do that yeah. into your phone um, had strange. to be difficult. It was, yeah. It, it was kind of strange. And, um, 
Yeah, but I, I mean, we, I managed in the end. Everybody did well. No, everybody. Yeah. It was a great process, and, and it was. It, I think it was a great. I think everybody enjoyed it over the course of the length of time that it did go on for, and you could see the changes, you know, in in presentation. Yeah, um, I, I think even the the, the 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 quality of you know the acts that were that were produced because you know a lot of them were done in lockdown where if memory serves right a lot of the actors and actresses did, weren't actually in the same room or anywhere that's right, that's yeah, right. You know, yeah even you know, there so, even from, so, the, from the from the from the theatre companies yeah, or the theatre yeah, groups yeah, even, that, that they varied, had to learn yeah. on the hoof as well on yeah. the, you know, oh so, absolutely huge early process yeah, for them yeah. I remember, remember Dunbeg who, who were one of the top groups in that you know they were in the top five anyway you know they, they didn't meet those actors, they, they, they did it all on Zoom. On Zoom and I, yeah. when I heard the end product, I thought it was extraordinary. I couldn't believe they weren't in the same room, you know. Yeah. So they did a fantastic job. Yeah. Other groups then, like um, Pocom uh, over in Tipperary, they, yeah. they, they, did, um, they, they came together. Um, yeah. um, keeping all the rules, but they Jesus came together. Distancing and the whole thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Big, yeah, big room. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Pecan, pecan, yeah. yeah. Big, big. There's a, is big, a pecan has the big. As you said, big hall, hard yeah. to fit. Ma- massive big hall. Arlo Guthrie was yeah. there at one stage years ago. Don't anyway, worry. that's that's a, that, that's an aside. We won't go. You mentioned there, Paul, just as you're talking about that, and you started, and it brings us nicely. Um, you talked about your mother mm. and your 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 initial radio career as as, as a very young child, which which are two lines. Your family would be easy to say, steeped in Irish theatre, your mother, your dad, Mm -hmm. and would have initiated or started using that medium of radio with the radio plays, which were the staple of any kind of drama presentation, I think, in the country in in those times. That's right. Um, What was that like growing up? Uh, Well, at one point, by the time we reached our um, early 20s, um, people used to say that um, when we had dinner together, it was like an equity meeting, <laughs> equity being the trade union for the actors, and uh, <laughs> because the chat would be all the business, you know. Yes. But earlier than that, um, going back into um, um, my late, later childhood and, and teens, the, the whole experience of, of my parents uh, as uh, my parents as actors was unusual. You know, anytime you said it to people, they were immediately interested, you know, mm. oh, that's interesting. And so one enjoyed a certain kind of privilege, which was a bit of a delusion in a way, because, you know, we were just ordinary people, really. Um, and yet I, I, I kind of bought into the idea that we were somehow special. Mm. And um, it was it took adulthood to, to knock that out of me and make me realise that yeah, you're not so special as you think you are. Um, my mother had a steady job and my father was a freelance actor. Mm-hmm. And um, so there was always a, a, a steadiness to to the thing, which acting families don't always get. We always hear that. Yeah, yeah. 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 But but the the um, my mother was a member of the Radio Air and Players or the Rep, the REP, the Rep, mm-hmm. as, as it was called, and uh, she had that as a, as a job for life, pretty much. And the weird thing was, she was therefore a civil servant, technically, or right. maybe even more than technically. And um, the civil service had a terrible tra- time trying to decide what grade they were. <laughs> what? How do you grade actors? You know, one of the extraordinary things about it was though that. When she got married, she didn't lose the job, like a lot of civil servants did. That's right. And I think it was just That's because right. the, the, the feeling was, well, what do you, how do we, who do we replace her with, you know? Um, I mean, there were other actors, but, like, somehow they were made an exception of, which was fantastic. That was a big thing in Ireland. You know, my own mother suffered, if you want to call it, and it is suffered, suffered mm. that, having to abandon her career at a yes. very young age. She was a trained nurse. And it, it impacted her on her for all of her life subsequently oh, I think for I think did. for all women of that generation it certainly yeah. would have had a big a big uh, 
effect on them. But it was yeah. maybe the acting profession were a bit more forward thinking than the rest <laughs> of us at the time. I don't know how or wh- whether it was the civil service themselves decided we better hang on to them <laughs> even though they're married or what. But it happened. So, yeah. so that was good. Yeah. yeah. But as regards um, life um, living with two acting parents, it could be very exciting, um, um, but it, it could, you, you also got some kind of s- sense of the, the pitfalls of the whole thing, yeah. more on my father's side, yes. where he, is, as a freelance actor, um, would have periods out of work. I was just listening to Gabriel Byrne talking the other, the other night on an interview that, from some time ago, um, where he said that um, if you're a freelance actor, you have gaps. There's no question about it. That's the periods, way it is. Yeah, periods out of work. And, um, yeah, it's... it's um, that, that, that can be very tough, particularly if, the, if if it runs to a long period of time. You begin to wonder, are you even an actor at all? You know, that kind of thing can, can yeah. start to happen. Yeah. Um, so, um, so yeah, it was... Um, it, it had quite a variety of experiences wrapped up in it. Yeah. But having said that then, and understanding the freelance nature of it, your father did kind of work with a lot of the top-end theatre in Dublin, Hilton Edwards, Micheál MacLeamore, The Abbey, The Gate. That's right, yes. Yeah. He had he, some serious... Um, notches on his acting belt. Absolutely. I mean, he seems to have been a, um, a fantastic actor. I mean, he never seemed to get a bad review. You know, he was always in, in demand. He could play character as well as young young leads. You know, you know, he could age up. Yes. Um, there's a play called Tree in the Crescent by Maura Laverty, I think it was, in the late 50s, which he was in in the Gay Theatre. And... Um, he was playing a middle-aged to old man, and he pulled it off, you know, just... He was a young man at that point. He was, oh, yes, he was still... 20s. He was at the end of his 20s, I think, mm. or the start of his 30s, and um, so he was able to do all that, and... Um, but, you know, he, he had troubles, and he, he, he had nerve troubles, and he had stuff like that, and more and more the, the, the stage work faded away. He moved into television and theatre in order to work at something that he could manage, but, you know... Acting work is hugely demanding on the nerves. You're out there in front of a live audience. You've got yes. to be on top of your game every night, all night. You know, and it's 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 a huge, it's hugely demanding. It is whether you're a professional actor or somebody on the amateur dramatic circuit, um, mm. you are you are exposing or bearing yourself to some extent or recreating yourself. Yeah. Um, it's mm. quite a difficulty. <laughs> we take it for granted. We look at it. We um, are entertained by it, but um, it's quite a difficult process yes but, but what's going on for, for the actor on, on stage is, is something else again that you don't really see um i i mean i teach acting and um i say to my young charges when I'm, I'm working with them i work up at the gaiety school of acting in dublin and um, the young people i'm putting through my hands so to speak are people who go on into the profession some of them and um so uh, i i tell them you know Every second you're on stage, your concentration has to be 100%, and um, you, you have to be totally present and with it. And, and you know, get, getting that every night. For, if, you, if you're in a run, a run of a play for 200 performances, what do you like on the 200th night? You know? Can you still do that on the 200th night? I remember talking to the actress Anna Manahan. Do you remember Anna? Anna Manahan, yeah. yeah. yeah absolutely. And, I, I, you know, she was in this incredibly long run of The Beauty Queen of Linan by Beauty Martin Queen. McDonough. Yeah. And um, she was the original creator of that role of the old woman in that play, the woman who gets murdered. Yes. And um, she, um, uh, I, I said to her, Anna, when it comes to like the 200th, the 300th performance, how do you do it? 
And she's and I said, well, I said, what's the secret? And she said, there's no secret. It's just bl- bloody hard work. <laughs> You're working hard. You yeah, you just got to slog it out. You know, <laughs> I remember Johnny Giles talking about this in soccer. You know, and saying that like deep into his career, he he was saying it's just bloody hard work. It's the same thing. You know, that um, people think soccer players enjoy yeah. soccer, but it's it's work for them. And sometimes when you've when you've done it for a very long time, it's hard work. It's hard work. Then. <laughs> yeah, yeah you really got it. It's pressure. It's constant yeah. pressure. Constant yeah. pressure and. Yeah, you know yeah. the difference is you might have three or four hundred people in in a hall versus thirty or forty thousand people. You know, in uh, a stadium. A, in a stadium. Yeah, yeah. same principle. Yeah. yeah. So, mm. how did you? You know, I, I commend your, your mom, your dad. I know your, your whole family. <laughs> it's quite an unusual. All your siblings. Yes, all. Yes. All your siblings. Yeah. <laughs> if we state that again, four. all your siblings <laughs> are involved in some way mostly as actors at this yeah. stage isn't it yeah i mean my sister catherine became a radio director eventually she was a radio actor she followed my mother into the rep mm-hmm. as an actress but then graduated so to speak if that's the word <laughs> on into being a director and um so she's um herself and myself are the exceptions because i also became a director Projected. but the other three um barbara uh, Stephen, and jane all became remained professional actors and um, have done very well, I have to say. Mm. Um, so, I mean, as to how I, I came into that, um, I think I was very much still living in this um, aura of the specialness of us and the specialness of being an actor by the time I reached um, 18. But, you know, at the age of 18, there was no acting school. When I was 18, um, back yeah. at the start of the 70s, there were no acting schools in this country apart from one small um weekend school called the Brenda Smith Academy and I would hear people being a bit sniffy about that so they say well I'm not going there and um, I wanted to go into the profession but uh, couldn't quite figure it. so I just thought well all right I'll do a BA in UCD which is what mm-hmm. I did and I thought okay I'll do that and um, then I'll make up my mind and I was in there mainly to do Dramsock. Dramsock. <laughs> Dramsock in UCD. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We all heard about that yeah, at times. Not, people. yes, yeah. yeah. Not uh, really to do uh, English and French, which is what I was supposed <laughs> to be doing. And at the end of that, I decided I definitely did want to become an actor. But I just marvel now that I never had the gumption to think, go to England, go to Rada, go to whatever central yeah. in London or whatever and, and train there. It didn't even occur to me. Yeah. And I, I think that, um, but in a way, this, this derived from my father's attitude towards the business, which was more that it was like a trade than a profession. Nowadays, it's a profession and people train like with me in the Gaiety School of Acting, for instance, um, and they go into it as trained professionals. But um, back then, my father's attitude was, no, 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 you just go and become an assistant stage manager and you watch. An apprenticeship. An apprentice, exactly. It was was the notion of apprentice as opposed to trained person um, in the the way in which lawyers or doctors get trained, that actors get trained similarly. That, that that difference was, was very um, stark at the time, and, and my father was not in favour of, of really training. But it was all right for him. He was a brilliant actor, just yes. naturally. <laughs> he had this natural ability to be great. Um, most of us need training. Almost yes. all of us need training. And and my, my view now is that, yes, you do need to go to the Gaiety School or, or the Lear in Trinity or wherever and, and train and... Um, so anyway, there I was at the age of 21, and I started to do what he said, and I, I gradually worked my way into uh, the, the the fringe. There was, a, there was a growing fringe in Dublin at the time, the Project Arts Centre, yes. the Focus, and theatres like this. An and exciting, uh, quite an exciting, well, there's always been yeah. eras and times and exciting times in the theatre in Ireland, but mm. that in its, most definitely in the 70s, like you said, the Project Focus... All, all those places were, were almost emerging. alternative, in a way, yes. to the Abbey or... Exactly, or the yeah, I mean... At that time, yeah. 
The 60s, the Irish theatre in the 60s was really contracted right down to just the Abbey, the Gate, occasional drama in the Gaiety, and that's it. There was the Dublin Theatre Festival, but that was it really. Then, at the start of the 70s, these other theatres started to emerge, so that by the time I was heading into the business in 74, 75, um, there was somewhere to go, there was a fringe to get into. Yes. And um, not a very big one, but it was there. And uh, so that's where I started out, and I made my way into that. Uh, But eventually the Arts Council... Um, created a scheme for for directors. And so I I became um, a trainee director on on an Arts Council scheme, and that's what got me into directing. That's what struck me, I was looking at the timeline, not knowing the full story, that your directing um, career started at a very young age. Am I right in saying that? Uh, Well, I suppose suppose early 20s, yeah. Yeah. Is that that unusual? No more so than your father's opinion about apprenticeships. Would there have been theatre directors of that age in Ireland, you know, would you have served an apprenticeship and become a director maybe in your 40s or your late 30s or that type of time? No, I think people that? did go for it in their 20s. Yeah, I think that, that, that there certainly were a few. But I mean, in a way, whatever age they were, um, I, I have done several plays as a professional actor with, with really bad directors. <laughs> and um, this is what the Arts Council were noticing age. as well. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> whatever the age, they, 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 were, they just weren't good. And I thought to myself, I could do better than this. I've got much better ideas than these guys directing me. And that's what drove me really into, into, into directing. Direction. That and the fact that I wasn't doing brilliant as an actor. Because mm-hmm. when I did that trainee directing, I moved straight into the centre of Irish theatre and started to work in the Abbey and the Gate, which I wasn't really getting as an actor. Okay. So I realised this is what I'm better at. Yes. So, so that's, that's how that came about. So you, like you say, I'm sorry to interrupt you there, but mm-hmm. you had that, the Arts Council started to recognise we have this dearth of directors yes. directing in Ireland. Yeah. We're going to try and do something about that. That suited you perfectly and others at yeah. that time. Um, mm. Then, you know, you, you come to the kind of the, I suppose, the mid-late 70s. Yeah. Your directing career, I suppose, yeah. begins then at that point, does it? Yeah, it's um, it's it's taking off at that point and I'm, I'm directing the likes of The Field and The Abbey and, yeah. and that was funny the way that came about because um, I, I, uh, I was actually to be in it at first and then the director fell out and I was asked to take over. To take it over. <laughs> So I, I got to do that, and I got to do um, I Do Not Like the Doctor Fell by Bernard Farrell just before that uh, in 79. How did you find that? Because that, that has a particular resonance here. I think you'll know where I'm going to be coming from now. It has a particular resonance. <laughs> Around here. <laughs> Around here, it certainly does. Yeah. Maybe you might have been sucked into that web at one stage as well, a, a new mm. member of the East Clare community. How did you find that? Um, it was great because um, at the time, there'd been a number of flops. Um, there'd been um, the the Life and Times of Benvenuto Cellini by Hugh Carr, which was given a huge production at the Abbey and was a total flop. And um, not necessarily Hugh Carr's fault, but yes. he's the father of Marina Carr. The, That's right, yeah. The, the playwright. Yeah. And um, so people were very, very jumpy about new Irish writing. Yeah. There was Hugh Leonard, there was Tom Murphy, there was Brian Friel, and there was almost nobody else. And that was it. In the mid to late 70s. Yeah, that was it. And in the 60s as well. And then... Um, Along came Bernard Farrell. And everybody in the cast, as well as around the Abbey, were saying, oh, well, here goes another flop. That's so there was no... Were, that's what they yeah, felt. There was, was no expectation. It was given a two-week run in the Peacock. Peacock. Peacock never got two-week run. You always A new play always got four weeks, or a new production always got four weeks. They only gave it two weeks. That was a reflection of how little they thought it was going to of do. this play and how it was going to do. And... Um, so we rehearsed it. I had wonderful cast with Tom Hickey. Um, um, you had serious people. actors in that first cast. Uh, you, you had serious actors. Oh, absolutely. Have, have Liam Neeson. Liam Neeson, hadn't you, on that one? <laughs> <laughs> I've heard of him. <laughs> um, yeah. In fact, interestingly, I offered the part to Gabriel Byrne and he turned it down. And so 
when he wasn't available, I was able to get Liam Neeson. <laughs> you have two A-list Hollywood <laughs> actors went through your fingers, or potentially exactly, went through your fingers. Exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, I remember halfway through the run, the back door banged open one night in the middle of the performance, and in came Gabriel Byrne, and he leaned against <laughs> the back wall, and he looked at it, got it. He looked, got it. He wasn't in it, and it, was, it worked. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But at all events, I rehearsed with... with um, with these actors, and we worked along, and it went very well. And um, why did, okay, okay, is it possible? Have you reflected on that? Why did it go well? Are we, do you have any yeah, I, I felt that in the case of that particular play, it was the mixture of of comedy, well, s- smartly written comedy, good structure, and a dark element. Yeah, you know, this Joe Fell character, he could do anything. Yeah. You know, um, he he could go anywhere, as they say, and. Um, uh, it was the combination of danger and comedy, which I think had an edge to it that just nobody tried before, uh, really quite in that way. So I think the play was was the principal thing, that it, we actually had found a really good play. Yeah. But it, we'd come to the point where people were so terrified of new Irish writing that nobody recognised that. You until couldn't see it. No, no. It. I mean, in fairness to Joe Dowling, who was the artistic director of the okay. Abbey at the time, he, he saw some potential in it and, and let it happen. Yes. And also the Abbey has a remit to do new Irish writing, so they had to do something. Had to do something, yeah. Yeah. Um, but but I think Joe actually did recognise that there, w- there was something really, there was potential here. And sure enough, it was realised in the production. But then when the play opened, um, the opening night happened, the reviews were great. We were all delighted. People were saying to me, oh, that, and Liam said to me, that's our real father in your cap. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Liam. <laughs> He then buggered off to do um, um, what you call it, the, the play a movie with John Borman with Helen Mirren. Excalibur. 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 Thank you very much. That's and right. that that was him t- taken off. Never saw him again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> off to Hollywood with him. But at all events, I think he's done okay. He's yeah, done you, okay. You set, you set him up well. <laughs> but um, yeah, so so uh, then the Abbey came back to me and said, um, Joe came back and said, well, let's um, um, give it another run. So it got uh, an. Uh, I think it got another one in the Peacock first. Then it was moved upstairs to the Abbey and it filled the Abbey. The Abbey stage. Yeah. And then it went to Cork and other places on tour. And mm-hmm. so it had a life for yeah. a while. Yeah. yeah. So it was great to, to, to actually yeah. get off on that foot, you know. It's an interesting point you make there um, from the 70s. You had, like you say, you had Hugh Leonard, you had Brian Freel and you had Tom Murphy. Yeah. And, and that was it. And nobody else could really yeah. kind of break through. No. And even some of those, you would imagine the likes of Tom Murphy would have struggled something hugely to even break through or would they be right in that well no, he had broken through in the 60s undoubtedly but he didn't break through in Ireland uh, well Whistle in the Dark well was an English phenomenon you're right about mm. that um, I think that um, he, he had he had certainly uh, got plays on in the Abbey like Morning After Optimism and then Sanctuary, Sanctuary Lamp. Lamp Sanctuary Lamp was not a great hit because it was a difficult play controversial plan. yeah and controversial um, but, you know, he, he kept going. I mean, he moved into a real golden era in the 80s with Druid. You're and right. And That's when he really, thing. yeah, yes. things, things, things lit up for him. Um, but he did have several productions in the Abbey. Um, he hung in there, if, if you he like. He hung yeah. in there. And, um, but some of those, even when you look at him or when you read some of the stuff that he talked about, and especially the likes of the Sanctuary Lamp, it had a kind of a profound effect on him, the reaction from, yes. fr- fr- from society, I suppose, or from people or from the, maybe even the professional... Mm. Theatre companies, um, it pretty much kind of, it was quite scarring. Yes, I'd say it was actually for him. And, um, uh, but he was an incredibly determined man. Yeah. Um, I mean, I came to know him in his later years because he married my sister, Jane. That's right. <laughs> yeah, so, okay. And um, I, I could always, even in his old age, I could, I could always sense the iron will that he had. As, as he was determined to, you know, to plow on, to, to get his stuff out. And, and, and he, well, by God, he did that. Yeah. 
Mm. Uh, the, um, Whistle in the Dark. I think the original name for that is the Iron Men, isn't it? That's right. It the is. Iron yeah, Iron he was, Will, Iron he's Man. a bit of an Iron Man Iron himself. Man, <laughs> Iron Man there anyway. Yeah, no, just as you were saying, it just struck me. Yeah. With yeah. Those. So do you feel, did that then open or, you know, Irish theatre then in the 80s? What yes. was that like in the that, 80s? That was just a, a great opening, not only in terms of, of the fringe in Dublin, but also in terms of rural, rural, the, the, not, sorry, rural based companies. I wouldn't say rural, but uh, the companies based. The red exactly, kettles. And exactly. All those, those companies based in other cities in Ireland yes, and in Cork, Galway's Cork uh, Triscoll yeah. and all the rest of it um, uh, and uh, so all those companies started to emerge so there was a, a huge proliferation and along with it came the proliferation of new Irish writing so following hard on Bernard Farrell's he's, was uh, J. Graham Reed who wrote um, ah, can you think of the title of any of his plays um, but they, they were um, uh, oh, the the death of Humpty Dumpty was that the, the name? Death of Humpty Dumpty, yeah, yeah. was his first play, I think. A terrific yeah. play, um, set in a hospital with a man who can't move in the bed, and and you know his, his very difficult situation. Um, so that that play w- was very was followed by other successes for J. Graham Reed, but then after the two of them, this other proliferation that happened coming out of. Uh, you know, um, companies around the country happened, and um, that brought, brought new playwrights with it. Mm. So, um, yeah, the, the Irish theatre just um, expanded exponentially after that. Yeah, yeah. And would you think that at this stage, you know, when you were jumping way ahead now, um, we would just jump ahead and maybe go back again. Then the writers and the and the playwrights that we have now are canon of work. How would you regard it now if you stand it up against maybe some of those earlier? Um, works? Yeah, I think there's been progress in, the, in that there's been investigation of new styles, there's been um, a sophistication in, in the writing and it's all reflected to society that's changing as well and, and you know as well as I how society has changed from the 80s to now those 40 mm. years Ireland has changed yes. I mean the, the the old remark, I think it was John McGarren said that Ireland has gone from the 19th century to the 21st without really doing the 20th. The 20th that's right <laughs> But we've had this very rapid yeah. development as, as a society and that's reflected in the expansion in theatre yeah, and expansion in writing then. And, and, yes, and, yeah, yeah in, in all the different um, stuff that's coming. Has that reflected in the um, nationality of people getting involved? You know, as I said, as the country has evolved with more, you know, people of foreign extraction or nationalities mm. and uh, habits and customs, ha- has that reflected itself into the people that are involved now? It has, and, and um, I think it's only in the past 20 rather than 40 years that that's happened. Yeah. Uh, that the 80s and the 90s, that wasn't so much a thing. No. Um, but, well, but, but in the, Everybody in, was leaving in the 80s <laughs> and 90s, I yeah. think yeah. so. In the 21st century, as it dawned, um, that whole development you're talking about came along, and that was fueled really by the Arts Council. Who decided? I mean, you couldn't get a grant unless your play was either about health or immigration, or, or you know, yeah. one one or the other. It had to either have black people in it or people who weren't well. <laughs> that they really pushed plays of that that, that dealt with those that the issues arising from issues. Yeah, yeah, from from those two areas, if you like, and um, and and in a way, I think that's fair enough. I mean, the, I mean, I remember applying to the Arts Council to do a play once. And just not being listened to because I didn't have either of those things going on, and I felt that they almost did it too much to the extent to the exclusion of other stuff, you know. Yeah. But um, at the same time, I would have to say that making adjustments so that it's more the whole thing is more inclusive um, mm. was was very important, mm. and also that we look at difficult problems to do with health and, and yeah. mental illness and all the rest, all those sort of things. It is always, I suppose, theatre of all the art forms in the country, you take any of them, take mm. novels or, or, or take sculpture or take art or whatever, but theatre has consistently and persistently gone up there to the front line when it comes to politics or when it comes to political issues. 
Yeah. Uh, go, go, you know, go back to the Sean O'Casey's or come right oh, through. Yes. You know, yeah. they, they've always kind of head on. And even like those ones that you mentioned in the 60s and 70s when maybe people couldn't break through, you know, emigration was always a kind of a, uh, and it's a big Irish yeah. issue of its time, mm. but it was always a, a central theme in, 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 in so much writing as well. So I think theatre has always kind of um, been right there, right beside politics. That's possibly... The arts and politics, as we can see it as it plays out then with the political class and the artistic class, can make for an uneasy relationship at times. Uh, you're, you're possibly referring to our president, uh, Paul, are you? <laughs> well, he's Indeed. part of it. He's, yeah. artist, he's a man yeah. with a leg in both camps. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there you are. Yeah. Yeah. But I always remember um, my father met Jack Lynch once, um, short, I think shortly after he'd ceased being Taoiseach. And um, Jack saying to, to Dad, I mean, he, he, my father was a member of, of the, the Council of, of Actors' Equity. The, the trade union and in some they had some in some way he therefore met Jack at some Jack. event and um, Jack said to him oh, your job is to criticise us I mean that was Jack's view of it was that the arts do do precisely this thing you're talking about of of, of uh, weighing into the political arena and having things to say about it mm. um, I mean if you think even as far back as Philadelphia here I come yeah. the immigration issue was was so um, uh, yeah. forensically investigated in that play yeah. um, conversations um, on a homecoming which would be a similar you know or, or sorry yes. a, 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 I mean, I'm sorry, a crucial week in the life of Gross's assistant. You know, yeah, it was similar. The, the yeah. But conversations also, actually. Conversations. Yeah, so on, the, the guy coming as you, back. As you come back. Yeah. On the yeah. outside, on the inside. All these players that, you know, they do kind of really get to the core of it, more so than most other mm. yeah. artistic yeah. forms. I mean, there is a thing about theatre which um, involves subversion. And, and uh, it is, the, it is the, in a way, the playwright's duty to be subversive. And uh, I've, I've, I've heard this explained in terms of the two Greek gods, Dionysus and Apollo. Di- Apollo is the god of harmony, of, of the arts, of, of everything going um, hunk, uh, hunky-dory. Yeah. And then Dionysus is the opposite. He is the god of um, letting it all hang out, the god of, <laughs> <laughs> of, of subversion, the god of, of orgasm, the god of yeah. all sorts of... Things like that. And um, which one of them is the god of theatre? Dionysus. <laughs> you may be sure. And so, um, and yet good theatre s- strives to find a balance between the Dionysiac and the Apollonian. Yeah. That, that there is subverting. And if you, are, even if you want to subvert society itself, you write a play that, that is politically controversial and so on. But there is also a requirement on the playwright to find the Apollonian within that, to find the harmony, to find mm. balance and so on. And so the two are continually in, in, in conflict with each other, if you like. And um, yeah, uh, the, the plays that, that are really controversial should also have that. I mean, that's, need that. I mean, there was, there was a play went on in, in England back... Um, I think it's a 90s play. A woman called Sarah Kane wrote a play called Blasted. And it's one of the most Dionysi- Dionysiac things I've ever heard. It's full of the most horrible things going on. Yeah. And this was done at the Royal Court in London. And I remember thinking to myself, that play doesn't have any Apollo. And it should. And it's even a thing I wonder about Marina Carr, whose place can be very dark. Very dark. Where's the Apollonian in her? Um, I think as she's matured, I think it has come. And yes. um, uh, I remember seeing the play Woman and Scarecrow by Marina Carr, which uh, a three-hander in which um, all that Dionysiac stuff happens. And um, but somehow towards the end of the play, it, it finds harmony, balance, it finds balance. Finds you know, harmony, yeah, you which, need it. Uh, absolutely, the viewer, yeah. The, 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 the person who's experiencing it, if they wanted to have an impact, you mm. need that ultimately. You know, yes. the blackness or the, or the Dionysic <laughs> part of it. Yeah. Is going to just be too much, and it'll just you'll just put it away. I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think that's what what blasted uh, was like. It was just too much. 
yeah. you know it was an experiment I suppose you could say and it was quite successful yeah. for a while but that 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 amount of darkness I don't know yeah. <laughs> well go back then to what might appear to be a comedy, go back to what we talked about, Dr. Fell, which, oh, yeah. which appeared to be a comedy and to all intents and purposes is and it's a good night's entertainment and the whole thing, but it does leave that little bit of, it, yeah. ha- it has the Apollo, but it has that little element of subversion in there as well. Oh, that it sure stays, does. stays with you or can stay with you, which is much more of an impact or much more of a, mm. of, of, of a result than getting absolutely hammered in, you know, with the thing. Yes. That's interesting. Yeah. interesting. Could, could I interject just for a, a minute, Paul? Yeah. As I said, no, some of that conversation, I'm afraid, has gone a little bit over my, uh, over my, uh, my, my uh, head. Now, my, 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 my brow is a bit lower. But uh, there's one thing that uh, uh, just struck me. Um, you know, I said, we're a radio station and thinking about things from the radio point of view and we're talking about politics and, you know, the, the one thing that I remember growing up as sort of being must-listen radio was Scrap Saturday, <laughs> right? The combination of the politics mm. and the the Radio voices acting again, <laughs> and and the mm. acting, and you know the people that were involved in the background and the creation of that. You, you know, Dermot Morgan, Jerry Stembridge, 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 Jerry Stembridge who wrote, you know, some w- w- you know w- went on to do, yeah. and, and you know, Father Ted sort of came over, mm. and Paul, Pauline McLean, and all the people of that. But it's the combination of um, how. I suppose radio is more intimate in a way in that um, if you're in, if the person's impersonating someone that you know and you might have heard them on the news or something like that and then they have this lilt or they take a bit of their voice or their accent like you know um, Dermot Morgan with Mara PJ Mara PJ Mara in reality sounded nothing like what he, <laughs> he right. was in but you know you, you then wind up with, with that caricature caricature but it sort of becomes real life in a way. <laughs> More real than the, the More real reality. Than the, than, than the politicians themselves. And then you sort of hear them say, no, oh yeah, we look forward to hearing the show on a Saturday. And then they say, and then they say oh, we might cut RT's budget there if we didn't like that. You know, and it's that era. Um, I think a, a, a lot of that, some of it went over my head at the time, but, you know, you, you got the, you know, the tapes afterwards and you start to listen back to it. And, you know, you'd read interviews when you're that little bit older and you start to realise, yeah, they, the actors and the people that wrote it were, they were getting a message across that was a little bit subliminal, you know, at maybe to some of us at the time, but has a very profound effect on, you know, I, I would say society as, as, as it has sort of gone on, you know. Mm. And it's there maybe to a lesser extent nowadays with, you know, with Oliver Callan and Callan's Kicks and stuff like that. But I think yeah. that's nearly, sounds more like a one-man show. But the whole team that were involved in, in Scrap Saturday, radio, like comedy like that now, I, I presume is, it's less of an art, not less of an art, but it doesn't exist as much nowadays but but the 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 circuit that you know would say you're involved in from the direction point of view and hopefully will all, all will get back up and running that's still there is there is that a trend you know is it just of its time or have you any thoughts on that um no i think i think it could happen now but i think the individuals that you're talking about uh, the dermot morgans and the jerry stembridges need to be there and and maybe um there's just a dearth of them at the moment or just a lull in, in the in the in the outcome because you're right callan's kicks isn't quite the same thing at all really yeah and i think it's in general you'd have to say on a on a subversometer that, <laughs> that um that the uh, scrap saturday was much more 
subversive yeah. I think oh, than, yeah, absolutely yeah, yeah. yeah. and, and I, I think you know we were that bit younger listening to it and it's only yeah. you listen back afterwards and say oh yeah that really was digging yeah they really <laughs> were kicking in and I yeah. think yeah. Um, I think to me the, the personnel is, is the factor mm. that determines why that would fade out a bit but I think yes. well it, it also depends I mean you need somebody like Hockey in, in society, in, in, in politics, for them to hit against. You have to have a totemic kind of a, yeah. of a, of a personality and, there as well. That's and politicians true. these you days are very careful not to become like that. Yeah. Yeah, so they, in they a way, there's yeah. that that's, to that's, it as well. There, there is that side of it as well. That's very true uh, yeah. as well. But then, if you have the right actor, they can make that personality. <laughs> yeah, yes, sure, yeah. I mean, I think that, that that's... That this, this is the kind of turning into a chicken and an egg. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I just like good radio comedy. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And that was the best, wasn't it? Have you ever got involved in that side of things you know we say from a directing point of view I don't know directing maybe for radio is, is the, the wrong way to, to look at it but we'll say is is comedy harder to do than than straight well they always say comedy is a serious business yes and um, it's serious because it's so easy to um, try to create well it's not easy it's it's the, the thing of creating comedy is not as easy as it looks and um Really, you need to be going. You need to be going for the truth rather than for um, effects. You know, trying to get laughs. If you try, if you go out doing comedy trying to get laughs, you won't get laughs. If you go out and play the truth um, from a certain point of view, you will. You will get. It'll work. Um, So it's 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 not easy to create, and um, just because you, you come across tragedy or other stuff that's very serious, that looks more. Serious. That doesn't mean that it's easier to do. That that that's harder to do. Um, they both they both do require a lot of work. Are there different types of people? Would say are there mainly? I I'm just going now from my uh, limited knowledge. I would say actors in mm. the t- in the movie and TV world. A lot of people they start off in the serious stuff and then uh, later on in their careers they'll do comedy and you know they they they, they might get a bit of a, a a jump out of being involved in a comedy and say oh he used to be a serious actor yeah, now yeah, he's yeah. doing comedy but yeah. but uh, there there is a difficulty you know you can do bad comedy. You know, you, you, a serious mm. actor, you know, can, can do bad comedy, whereas sometimes a good comedian can't do ser- serious as well. You know, <laughs> it's it's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I remember Walter Matthau seeing him once on Parkinson, and uh, Walter Matthau, um, try, he, he said, "I can't tell a joke." Like he's a famous comedy actor, comedy actor yeah. but he he started to tell jokes. And he, they just fell flat one after the other. And the fact that they were falling flat was what was funny. Yeah. The actual jokes themselves weren't, you know. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's funny how some people just don't, can't, can't change from the one mode to the yes. other, if you like. Do you see that in, in the, the, I suppose, maybe the next part, maybe we've skipped a bit, but the next part of your career, the, the adjudicating element of your career when you mm. travel around the country. At this stage, now you've a lot of years done at this time of, well, a little bit later from kind of February, March, April onwards and yes. going to festivals and they can be from Northern Ireland down to the southeast coast and over to the west coast. They're all over. They're, they a, real, they're yep. a real envelope for the whole country. Mm. Is there a full, yeah, well, there is obviously, the full canon of everything comes before you over those 10 or 12 nights from comedy to the mm. serious stuff to the seriously serious stuff <laughs> everything yeah. and a full variety then of of, of, perfor- of types of performance types of direction types of lighting types of sound yeah. how have you found that, that that part of your career well I suppose um, it's, it's theatre happening at an amateur level and um, I remember in the early years uh, thinking God, the one thing amateur groups really don't do well is setting sets 
a set. Yeah, and then that changed, uh, particularly with a man called Sean Judge, who's sadly dead now. He was from Kildare, from um, Rathangan, I think. Silken Thomas was Silken the name Thomas. of the group. Yeah. Oh, he, yes. he suddenly started to produce sets that were really professional standard, you know, like pushing up towards professional standard. I remember seeing his production of Equus, amazing Equus, set, you know. Yeah. And um, that that was something which which I, I often know, because you could see, you will always see in amateur productions performances that reach towards professional and standard. Silk and Thomas, were, I think that group that you mentioned, I think they were the group at one stage when Michelle Vockley were on the circuit, they were on the circuit as well, they were doing some Strindberg play or something like that, yeah. but they got the costumes, the suits, you know, those kind of frock morning coats, they were made in Thailand. Oh my God. Is yeah. This, is so this the level? No, they were an open group. Now it is. They were an open group. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Right, yeah. That's the type of. Yeah. So, so Sean was, was the sort of guy who would go out and reach for that professional standard. And other groups began to pick up on that. And I think now I expect to see a decent set when mm. I look at an open group, um, certainly um, in, in the, in the, uh, on, on the circuit. But um, how has it been? I mean, it's. Ten days away from home, which could be tough, you know. <laughs> as, a, as, a, as a kind of a, a bleakish time of the year, March, April, <laughs> exactly. is, is, it can be a bleakish time of the year. When I think of going out for walks, I don't remember a walk that was really uplifting anywhere <laughs> in the country <laughs> because know. everything just hadn't quite started growing. That's yet, you know? it is. It, yeah, it's a tough time <laughs> of the year. But um, you know, groups around the country are always very welcoming, and, and it's always very pleasant that way. Um, as regards the fair that you're seeing. I mean, it's inevitable that the amateurs will be a few years behind the profession. They're picking up in places that were hits five years ago, Did, ten years ago. Is that how it actually longer. worked? They tend to kind of, you know, the, the amateur groups tend to kind of, like I say, a couple of years later, follow what yeah. it is that has been. That's 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 it, that, that's true mainly of the um, the the, the, the full length plays circuit, mm. the three actors, the three act, yeah. Um, but it's no longer quite true of the one act. Interestingly, a whole trend has developed with the one acts, whereby um, groups more and more are writing their own one act play. And, and that's wonderful. So the one-act circuit, which happens in November, is seen as an opportunity to, um, to develop writers, to develop new young directors, to give their younger actors a go or their less experienced ones. And so it's, it's been wonderful that way, but it has produced interesting new material. I mean, not everything works, of course, but yeah. it does mean that a whole new creative streak is being brought out of amateur groups. But in the, in the three-act circuit there, they're more uh, yeah, reluctant to do that. It's a bigger commitment. A You're bigger. bringing out a big production. It costs yeah. a lot of money, and they tend to go back into the uh, into the professional um, canon of plays and find something that they think they can do. Yeah. So, um, so that's the. But the, the like anything else, it is evolving as you've outlined there. Even yes. to anybody who's listening now and, and, and interested, and we have loads of people in East Clare. You often find that at the festival or at the Clare Drama Festival that have a, a, a keen eye. I'll put it that way to adjudicate yes. themselves and to, and to offer an opinion on oh, a yeah. production. But keep an eye on the one act stuff in in November, December. Yes, absolutely. That's one, yeah, that's, that's yeah. And that's not something that happens. So, I mean, do do and beg to do it. Do and beg. Um, yeah. But but Scarif haven't no. um, picked up on it and. Um, uh, even Schlievakti haven't done the, fe- no. the, the one-act circuit much. They did this year. Just had a kind yeah. of a, dipped a little toe in the water. Yeah, and I think it would um, be good if they do because it's, I mean, particularly for the group rather than the, the, the festival, it would be good to, um, uh, yeah, to, to take the opportunities it presents to, to develop new, yeah. new people and new material. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Paul, um, I'm just going to go back to where we started maybe a little bit and you talked about the acting and the fact that you work as a... As, 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 as trainer, if we call it this, of yes. actors now at this stage with the Gaiety School of Acting. Mm. And we talked about the, the acting 
um, the profession we talked about, you know, bearing yourself there and the difficulty of that. Is there any particular, you know, you know, there were, we talk about a lot of methods with acting, even method acting itself. Would you subscribe or would you believe in or is there one um, way, of, way of doing it yes. that makes it easier? For me, the way of doing it is what I call is what is called Michael Chekhov technique. Okay. And in fact, that's all I teach because when I came across that in the early 90s, I said, this is it. Now, this is what I want to teach. Forget Brecht, forget Stanislavski, this is what I want to teach. And I fell head over heels for that particular approach. And that particular approach wouldn't quite correspond to the notion of um, uh, method acting or whatever. Um, I should tell you a little bit about Michael Chekhov. He, yes, he was yes. a man born in 1891. By 1911, when he was 20 or so, he was um, taken into the Moscow Art Theatre by Stanislavski. So this was the theatre company that was uh, leading the pack at, the, at that mm-hmm. time, the, the one where the most forward thinking about theatre training and, and act, acting process was happening. And um, he worked with them for seven years. And then after the revolution in Russia, he... Um, uh, formed his, he, he had a bit of an internal revolution himself, he became unwell, and then he, he when he went back to the Moscow Art Theatre a couple of years later, they gave him his own company, because Stanislavski, the man who ran it, recognised that Michael Chekhov had something special, and he needs his own studio to develop his own thing. And that, so, you know, it was very insightful of, <coughs> of Stanislavski. So, he, um, over the next uh, eight or so years, he developed his own approach and then in 1928, Stalin was on his case and Stalin said, oh, this is a sick artist. And he had to, he was told, get out now or you will be dead in another month. Yeah. So he got out and he went all over Europe looking for places to try and settle and develop his thing. He ended up in England for a while um, in Dartington College um, where he did a lot of, he did teaching just there and, and um, developed his process further. But then eventually he went to America and then the Americans joined the war. So he, he decided to throw his hat at it and go to Hollywood. And he went to Hollywood where he <coughs> made movies with people like Alfred Hitchcock. He was in a, a movie called Spellbound, which um, uh, earned him a, a, a nomination for an Oscar for Best Supporting Actor. He was wonderful in it, in the movie. If you ever get the chance to see Spellbound, Spellbound. you should look at it. But in the final seven or eight years of his life, he put down on paper everything that he had learned. And that's what we have today by way of um, information about his, his process. And it's wonderful. Um, it really it, it places an emphasis on the, the actor's imagination. It gets the actor to work to, to trust his imagination much more and work out of that. I mean, if you're going to play um, a Roman emperor, um, where do you go? In, in method acting, you go and look at people who do, like, if you want to be a boxer in a movie, you go and look at boxers. Yeah. If you want to be a Roman emperor, emperor. what do you look at? You're going to find a Roman emperor. You use your imagination. <laughs> and this is what, yeah, uh, this yeah. is what, what Chekhov cultivated. And uh, he also believed in really trusting your body and letting impulses from the body bring bring out what it is you need to produce as an actor and um, he above all believed in the actor as artist so the actor I mean a lot of people today think well the actor is an interpretive artist no we check off the actor is an artist artist uh, because the, the creative process for the actor is just the same as it is for the writer, the writer or the composer or anybody it's something within yourself that you produce out of inspirations and um, the fact that there's a script already there what the hell? That's just a found material, if you like, yeah. that you're working with. But really, the creative process happens in the actor just like it does in all the other creative artists. And um, that was his belief, okay. and, and I, I share that belief absolutely. Well, yeah. If you take take any t- take, we take one take the Bull McCabe. We've got Ray McNally's Bull McCabe. We've Richard Harris's Bull McCabe. They're all 
out of that individual, the therefore they're different from, from the each actor. other. The, yeah, John yeah. B. Keane wrote it on the page. It's got mm. those script. It's got those lines. But I can picture I can picture Mike Mack in Mount Shannon as a bull McCabe. You know, I've yes. got four, five, six, seven, eight bull McCabe's just to use that as a yeah. That's yeah. interesting. Well, they all have something different to bring. They all have something different yeah, to bring. Because they're different yeah. to the same to the same yeah. um, script to the same words. To Absolutely, the same words. yeah. Um, so Paul, I know we've gone way over time. <laughs> we've gone way, way, way over time. Um, well, good I look with the editing. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> we'll see how that will work. We'll see how that will work. We'll, probably, well, we'll, we'll have it all on podcast. Yeah, we, we, <laughs> we, we, we might thing. need a new director. <laughs> we might need a director. We need, we need one of those directors. We certainly do. Um, I'd just like to thank you very, very much um, okay. for what you did here today. Um, really interesting. Some really interesting um, insights. In, in t- we didn't even touch half of what I wanted to touch <laughs> but anyway um, well, we, we, if we get caught again Paul in about five years time ah, we'll come back, we'll come back, back for part two I'll hobble back and give you a little bit more of it <laughs> thanks very much Paul thanks for okay. coming this morning you're okay. welcome thank you